And back in July, we started this series on the law in the Old Testament, and we spent four weeks looking at the law and uh, understanding about the law, because people don't have understanding about that today, and which laws apply to us today, and how do we understand the God who made those laws. And then uh, the last weekend, and this weekend, I've been dealing with the question of explaining Old Testament violence, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of violence in the Old Testament. And people have questions about that. How can a loving God allow or command some of the things that we see going on in the Old Testament? And, uh, and you know, I, w- I was talking to Donovan this past week, and he's been doing a, a whole bunch of reading. Obviously, his area of passion is with the youth and the young adults. And he was telling me some statistics that they are finding consistently. These aren't just statistics, you know, pulled off the internet somewhere. These are reliable statistics. Guys like George Barna and a number of other researchers over the years, and they're all in agreement on this stuff. Uh, Statistics about our young people in uh, Canada and the U.S., and this is what they're telling us, that right now in Canada and the U.S., uh, 70 to 85% of kids who grow up going to church every weekend uh, will leave the church and never come back after they graduate from high school. I mean, that is just a stunning number. And then if you take that to age 25, by the t- age of 25, it's 90%. So in other words, you, you, go, you go anywhere in this country right now, and you find 10 good church kids, and they're going to church, and they say all the right things, and nine of them, by the time they're 25, will have left the faith. And you know, there's, 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 I mean, there's many reasons for this. I think one of the main reasons is that, is that they're growing up in churches where there's no power of God. Nobody's hearing God's voice. So it must just be a religion. It's just a bunch of words. That's all it is. I think that's a big reason. But there's another reason that they're finding, and that is this, that these kids are not getting their questions answered. They're not getting their questions answered. They're growing up with legitimate questions, and no one in the church is answering their questions. Their parents aren't answering them. Their pastors aren't answering them. Their leaders aren't answering them. And so, and they're not experiencing God anywhere. They're not seeing God do any big things. And so they turn 18, or they turn 25, and they leave. And they say, God's not real. And the reason this applies to the message that I'm preaching here today, and that I started last weekend is that one of the questions they're finding, one of the big questions they're finding that kids are not getting answered is kids are asking the question, how can a loving God command some of the things we see going on in the Old Testament? How can a loving God command wars of extermination and those sorts of things? And Donovan was even telling me about a testimony he read this past week of a young man, grew up in a church, just your A-plus God kid, and did all the things we want our kids to do and was involved in all the clubs and serving and leading and all that sort of stuff. But when he was a teenager, he started to ask the question. How, he's reading his Old Testament. He's saying, I just, I don't see how he's a loving God. I don't see how he's a just God. And nobody asked that, answered his question. It kept growing and growing and growing. He went to university and he eventually decided that atheism had better answers. And he's a full-blown atheist today. And so uh, th- what we're talking about here today and last weekend, this is not abstract stuff that doesn't apply to your life. This is stuff we have got to turn the tide around. Now, by the way, the, it's not 70, 85% here at Southland. The, the tide is reversed here at Southland already. But we have got to have confidence as parents and as people in the church. And we have got to pass that confidence onto our kids that God is a good God and this book is reliable and trustworthy. So these are not abstract questions, and I'm passionate about these, and even if you don't remember exactly word for word how to answer someone, just knowing that there is an answer, that confidence is going to pass on. 
And God, the Holy Spirit is going to begin to help you as you study and as, you, as we feed on meat. The Holy Spirit is going to help you to be the kind of person who can pass on to other kids, other people's kids, your own kids, our kids as a church. And we're going to be able to tell them that God is a good God and his book is a good book. And so we started this last weekend. How can we explain Old Testament violence? Okay, in light of a good God, because you just can't answer this question in one message. And so last week we said, let's look at the context. And something I want you to brand, each one of you brand onto your brain, is when people get bothered by the things going on in the Old Testament, don't start there, take them back to the beginning. Take them back to the beginning, because people get stumped. People ask you, well, how can God command a war like this? And what they totally forget and what we totally forget is let's go back and figure out who's responsible for having there being wars on this planet to begin with. And so if we go back to the very beginning, we see that God created a perfect world in which there was no disease and no death and no war. All, none of those things were in God's plan for creation. Those were not God's ideals. Those were not what God wanted. God made a perfect world where people would live in perfect harmony with him and with each other. And their bodies would be healthy. And they would have good purpose in life. And they would enjoy life and all the pleasures that God had provided on the earth. God made a perfect, good world. Step one, I want that to be branded into every one of our minds here. God is a good God. God made a good world. Step two, what happened though? People chose sin. Mankind said, yes, God is a good God, but I think we know better. And so mankind decides we're going to do things our own way. And the moment you put a wall between yourself and God, God is the source of all life. Life. You put a wall between yourself and the source of all life, and what do you get? A lack of life, and that is death. People chose sin. Sin warped the world, a warped world with death and war and all those other sorts of things. And even today, it's still people who choose war and people who choose genocide and people who choose rage and violence and all these sorts of things. Mankind chose sin, not God. God made a perfect world. There was no such thing in the world that God created and God didn't want it in the world. Step number two, mankind said, we're going to do things our own way and mankind chose sin and everything that comes with it. And this next part is really important because the, the third point you've got to remember is this. God could have rightfully stepped back and said, I'll just leave you to your own devices. He made a perfect world and mankind messed it up. God did not need to rescue mankind. He'd, he didn't need to have any of the wars. He didn't need to command any of the wars that are in the Old Testament. He could have kept his hands clean. All he would have had to say is, okay, I'll just leave you to your own devices and leave us all to go to our deaths apart from him. He could have left us all to go to hell. It was human beings' choice that brought sin into the world and God is not obligated to fix that. And so he could have kept his hands clean. It would have been super easy for him and we wouldn't have had anything to, you know, blame him for if he would have just stepped back and said, there you go, you want death? You got death. But in his love, he didn't do that. In his love, he said, I don't have to do this. This is what I want to do because I'm a good God. I'm going to step in and I'm going to put in motion a rescue plan so that any human being who wants can be saved from this life of death. And so he put in motion a rescue plan. But the moment he put his, in motion a rescue plan, he's got to get his hands dirty in this broken world. Yes? 
I mean a surgeon who's going to save someone's life and they've got some kind of life-threatening disease and he's got to cut out something or he's got to cut off something. His hands are going to get a little dirty. He's got to do some things that hurt that patient, but he's got to do it in order to save the patient. Amen? And so God said, I'm not just going to stand back and do nothing. I'm going to have to cause pain in order to save humanity, but I'm doing it in order to save. And so we talked about last week, we said, what's the only way for mankind to be saved? If mankind brings death into the world, then the only way for this thing to be fixed is for a man to die, and he's got to be a perfect man. So God sent his son Jesus to be born as a human being. But now that sounds simple enough just to say it like that. But here's the thing, in order to send his son into the world to be born to save the world, he first has to raise up a people from whom this Messiah can be born, doesn't he? And in order to raise up a people, so he's got to pick Abraham and then he picks Isaac and he says, it's going to be your descendants. And we call those descendants the Jewish people. But in order to have a Messiah that can save all of humankind, he's got to raise up a people. So he raises up the Jews. But in order to raise up a people, he has to give them a piece of land. And in order to give them a piece of land, he's got to get some people off that land. And in order to get some people off that land, it's going to take some war. But I want you to remember right from the very beginning, this is, this is the context for these wars. You have to know context. These are not wars because God hates human beings. If he hated human beings, he would never have commanded war. He would have just watched us kill ourselves. He's only getting his hands dirty because he wants Jesus to be born so he can save all of us who want. So he's, he's going to send a Messiah into the world. He's got to raise up a people. In order to raise up a people, he has to have a piece of land. In order to have a piece of land, he's got to get some people off that piece of land. And in order to do that, there's going to be war. But it's war for a reason. Just like when a surgeon has to amputate something, he's cutting something off for a reason. He's a hero. He's saving a life. And this is absolutely Vital, vitally important information to realize as you're reading through the Old Testament. You must always remember the background of why is God doing this. Remember, always remember as you're reading through this. He didn't have to do any of it. He could have just stepped back and then we wouldn't have anything to blame him for. The only reason we have any pain in this world to blame him for is because he's getting his hands dirty trying to save us. Now, that's the context. That's the start. But people still want to blame him even on that one, okay? So granted, most of us don't even think about the context, the fact that the only reason he has to, has to declare wars is because he's trying to save us. But even with that context, and this is the ob- objection where I'm going to spend the first two-thirds of this message, is people will still say, okay, fine, even if I grant you, Chris, the context, he's trying to save humanity. It's not fair and it's not right to those poor, innocent Canaanite people for God to slaughter them in order to make room for the Jews, and that's the objection. It wasn't right for God to slaughter innocent people in order to make room for the Jews. Okay? And so I'm going to look at four points with that. And by the way, at the end of this message as well, I'm going to tack on something totally unrelated, but that's polygamy in the Old Testament. So women, stick around for the end. Okay? <laughs> let's pray and let's get into it. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, you are a good God. And I am passionate to stand here and tell everyone that you are a just, good God, that you have never done anything unjust, and that you will never do anything unjust. Everything you do is true and just and righteous and loving. 
And Father, I am praying for this country of Canada, Lord Jesus. They have put us in the newspapers and said, us and eight other countries, that Christianity will be dead in this country in this generation. And Lord Jesus, I am praying that you will use our church family here at Southland to reverse that tide in this country. That here at this church, and that it will begin to spring up in churches across Canada, that young people will start to pour into the churches instead of out. Father, I pray for a Holy Spirit boldness to begin to take over us as people, that we will stop being afraid, that we will stop being afraid to ask questions and stop being afraid to answer questions, and that a Holy Spirit boldness would come on us to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth and not to be afraid of it. And I thank you, Jesus, for what you're going to do here this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Four points. It's not fair. It is not right, people are saying. Lots of people are saying it's outside the church, inside the church. It's not right what God did to the Canaanites when he slaughtered all those innocent people to bring in the Jews, okay? Four points. First point is this. They weren't innocent. They were not innocent. The inhabitants of Canaan were not innocent. We have this idea like God's sitting in his throne room and he's like, okay, I gotta send Jesus into the world to save the world. I gotta raise up a people. So it's a Jewish people. I gotta give him a piece of land. Here's how I'm gonna come up with a piece of land. Closes his eyes, puts his finger on the map. Oh, right there. Those people are gone, okay? That's not what God did. He's a just God in every single thing he does. You know what he did? He picked some of the most wicked and vile cultures in all of the world. Then he gave them a chance to repent. And when they didn't, he said, you no longer deserve to be on that land. And by the way, guess what? If God made the world, whose land is it? His. So if he says that someone can be on that land and then later says they can't be on that land, is he in the right? Yeah. And by the way, guess what? He's fair. Later when the Jews forsook him, what did he do? He took them off the land too, twice. He's fair in everything he does. And so he did not just kick anyone out. He did not just put his finger on a map and say, you guys are gone and I'm going to bring in the Jews. Even though his intentions are to save humanity. You know, if, if you or I was God and we had this plan to save all humanity, I bet you we would cut corners and we wouldn't have any problems with a, a few minor injustices in order to make room for the Messiah, right? God would not even cut a single corner on the way to Jesus. And I want you to read this. In Genesis chapter 15, he is not kicking out innocent nations. He's not kicking out nations that haven't had a chance to repent. He is only removing nations who are already wicked and vile and corrupt. Genesis chapter 15, God says this to Abraham. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain, so now we're getting a prophecy, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. He's prophesying ahead to Egypt. And will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Now, why would God make, it, make them wait 400 years? And I'm sure in his infinite knowledge, there's many, many reasons, but I'll show you one reason. You're going to see it in just a moment. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they, shall come, and they his descendants, shall come back here because Abraham is in the promised land when God's given him this promise. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. I want you to notice something here. God is about to save the, the whole human race. He wants to do it through Jesus. And so he's got every right to just say, this piece of land, we're going to start it right here. And he says, I won't start for 400 more years because these people haven't done enough yet to be kicked off and I have to give them 400 years to repent. Until their iniquity is complete, they have to get much more corrupt and much more vile and they have to refuse me for 400 more years before I'll say, okay, you have to go. He's just in everything he does. 
That was the Amorites who were living in a promised land. It's not just, I'm flicking you out of here. I'm giving them a chance. But it wasn't just the Amorites who lived in the land of Canaan. I'll just call the, the promised land what it was before it was the promised land. I'll just call it the land of Canaan. It wasn't just the Amorites who lived in the land of Canaan. Last week I talked to you about the Nephilim. Okay, and some of you, your hair stood up on end. And, uh, but the other thing you have to realize is when the Israelites came into, into the promised land, one of the things you have to realize is that some of the main inhabitants in the promised land were Nephilim. God-hating, rebellious, monstrous, people-enslaving giants. And you're going to read about them all over in the Old Testament. This is not innocent people. This is not, you know, your nuclear family, mom and dad and three kids, la, 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 pushing a baby stroller down the sidewalk, and the Israelites, ah, we kill you all. That's the idea that people have about the Old Testament. So you've got the Amorites who have 400 years to repent, and then their society becomes so corrupt that God says, now you have to go. And you've got these Nephilim living in the land. Let me read this to you in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33. The spies go into the land, and they say, and there we saw the Nephilim, which literally, again, in Hebrew means giants. And it means fallen ones. These are monstrous beings again. Remember Goliath and all of his brothers. Uh, these are rebellious, hating, violent men. Goliath was over nine feet tall. Monstrous. He had over four brothers. Some of his brothers had six fingers and six toes on their hands and feet. Okay, these were nasty beings. Okay? Oh, you read in Deuteronomy, Moses and the Israelites are coming to the promised land, and one of the first group of people they meet is, is the Amorites, and the king is Og. And Og has a bed that's 13 and a half feet long and 7 feet wide. See, and you go, these were innocent people. These were not innocent people. These were God-hating people, enslaving giants. And it was God's mercy that he sent the Jews to do everybody else's dirty work to get rid of these giants. They were hideous beings. By the way, they had all kinds of different names. You read about the Anakites here. The Anakites' name, you know what it means? Because you read all these names in the Old Testament about some of these groups, these tribes of giants, and you read Anakites and Zamzamites and Emites and, and Ephraites and all these sort of things, and you go, and to us it's just these random weird-sounding names. Each of those names had a meaning. Okay? The Anakites, you know what the word Anakites mean? It means stranglers. Okay? Now just think about that for a moment. Put yourself back there. You're driving along the Trans-Canada Highway and you come across this little town, population 9,000, and it says, welcome to the Stranglers. Okay? And you've got these monstrous beings with long necks walking around who hate people. Okay? These are not innocent beings. Rebellious against God. You remember Goliath and, and his brothers, the Zamzamites and all these? It means schemers, plotters, crushing tyrants, titans. And when the spies first saw some of these people, the, the Anakite group, look what they said, the sons of Anak who came from the Nephilim, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. Get out of your mind this idea of happy, innocent people who don't know about God, and then the Israelites just kill them all in order to have the land. It's not what happened. The Amorites had 400 years to repent. The Nephilim were demonic beings who refused to repent and hated people. It's God's mercy. And I'll just call the rest. There's a few other tribes of people. I'll just call the rest and I'll put them under the umbrella of the Canaanite peoples. And let's talk about the Canaanites for just a moment here. We know lots about the Canaanites from archaeology. And, uh, and this was a, a debauched society at a level. If, they, if the Canaanites were a nation today, we would say they were guilty of the grossest human rights violations imaginable. Okay? 
Let, let, me, let me explain it to you this way. I was going to read you some of their scriptures, some of passages of what would be kind of the equivalent of the Canaanite scriptures about their primary God. Their primary deity, deity was a female God by the name of Anath. I was going to read you a little bit about her, except I couldn't. It was too vile. Okay, let me just give you the short, the short version of what Anath. This is the God the Canaanites worshipped. They worshipped Anath. It was their primary deity. Anath was uh, this female goddess who she loved to kill, massacre, and torture human beings. Loved it. And then she would bathe in the gore. That's the short. The whole, their whole Canaanite scriptures were made up of stories of what she would do to people like that in gross detail. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. If the God you worship is absolutely bloodthirsty and sexually debauched and vile, how much worse are the human beings going to be who are worshiping that God? Because if that's your God, what... I mean, it's the, it's, the ones that, it's the one we worship that sets our boundaries for how we behave as human beings. Isn't that true? So if you worship a God who is vile, sexually perverse, and incredibly violent and gory, what are you the people going to be? There's no boundaries on you. That's who you're emulating. That's who you're worshiping. That's who you're trying to please. And so it's no surprise, we find this all over in archaeology, that the Canaanite peoples were an absolutely bloodthirsty, disgusting society. They engaged in child torture and sacrifice, burning their babies on red-hot idols. Bestiality, incest, the worst kinds of sexual perversion were commonplace in this society and accepted because that's what their gods did. And so these are, not, these are not innocent societies. These would have been, again, if these nations would have been around today, we would have said, these are horrendous nations. The UN needs to step in and do something about this because what's happening over there is horrible. Not innocent, first thing. Okay, we've got this objection. It wasn't right for God to slaughter innocent people in order to make room for the Jews. They were not innocent. God is a just God in everything he does. Let's go to point number two. This one only gets better. Point number two, and then point number three gets even better than that, all right? Point number two, God did not just slaughter the inhabitants of the land, he drove them out. This is very, very important. First point, we said, people were saying, ah, he's slaughtering innocent people. No, first of all, they weren't innocent. Second point, it wasn't a slaughter. It wasn't supposed to be a slaughter. People have this idea, like God's goal with the promised land was surround it, put a fence up, and then, and then systematically exterminate every person living inside of it so the Jews can live there. And that is not even close to what happened, and it's not close to what God's goals were for the promised land. And the only reason we think it's true is because we already have a set of glasses on when we read the Old Testament. We have this set of glasses on that tells us it's violent and slaughter, and so that's what we read when we read it, but that's not actually what it says. God's actual goal was not to systematically kill every person living in the promised land. It was to push them out and make them move elsewhere. Let's look at this. Let's read it from God's own mouth. Exodus 23, verses 28 to 30. Here it is. And I, this is God speaking, will send hornets before you, the Israelites, which shall what? Drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. Let's just stop there for a moment. Driving these peoples out. Remember, they're not innocent people, first of all. They are not innocent. But second, even though they're not innocent, he's not mass exterminating them. He's pushing them out. There's a huge difference there, is there not? A massive difference. He's pushing them elsewhere. Let's keep reading here. I will not drive them out from, you bef- uh, from before you in one year, 
lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Look at this. Little by little will I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. It's not God snapping his finger and creating a massive refugee problem. He says, I'm not going to do this in one year. I'm not going to do it in two years. I'm going to do this over a course of many years. I'm going to slowly drive them out. And I want you to notice something else here. His main tactic is not war. His main tactic is to drive them out ahead of the Israelites. See, this is the thing you have to realize with the Old Testament. The only, when you read about wars where the Israelites are having to kill people, it's the people who refuse to leave. It's the people who are stubbornly staying behind. I'm going to develop that point more in the next point. But here, though, I want you to see, God is driving them out ahead. He's going to use fear. He's going to use economic collapse. He's going to use drought and crop failure, all kind of thing. But he's going to send his spiritual hornets in advance to drive the people out, not mass exterminate or slaughter them. This is really important, and he's going to do it little by little over the course of many years. By the way, again, archaeology confirms this. Archaeologists, I mean, there's just so much archaeological evidence for a lot of this stuff, but archaeologists tell us that Canaanite influence in the Middle East there disappears over the, over the space of over 200 years. It was a very slow process. Little by little, I will drive them out ahead of you, okay? So first of all, they were not innocent. Second of all, it wasn't a mass extermination. They were supposed to be driven out. They were supposed to move, okay? Third point. And this one's the kicker. This is the most important one. Here it is. They didn't have to move. They didn't have to move. You say, you're confusing me, Chris. First you say, he's driving them out and they have to move. And then second, you're saying that they didn't have to move. They didn't have to move. Let me ask you. Give me a show of hands. How many of you know the story of Rahab? If you know the story of Rahab, you just put your hand up in the air. Don't be embarrassed. Some of you should be embarrassed because you don't know. Okay. Read your Bible. It's in Joshua. Okay. Joshua. It's a good book. Okay. Rahab is Rahab, for those of you who have actually read one of the most famous stories in all the Bible, is Rahab a Canaanite or is she a Jew? Canaanite. She's a Canaanite. Thank you, Andreas. He's been here all four services, I believe. But anyway, <laughs> so I shouldn't ask him as long as he's here. But anyway, Rahab is a Canaanite, okay? Rahab is not a Jew. Now, let me ask you, those of you who know the story, did Rahab have to move out of the promised land or did she get to stay and be blessed? She stayed and was blessed, her and her whole family. Now, why is that? I'll tell you why. Because she switched sides. Let me read you the story. This is in Joshua, famous story. It says this, before the men, that's the spies, remember she's hiding the spies. Before the man lay down, she, that's Rahab, came up to them on the roof and said to the man, I know that the Lord, by the way, the word there is Yahweh. How does this Canaanite woman know the name of God? That is a very important point that we're going to come back to later as well. I know that Yahweh has given you the land. She knows who God is, this Canaanite woman. I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up. Dried up. By the way, anytime you read in your Bible and Lord is all capitalized that, that is the actual name of God. And in English, they just translate it as Lord with capital letters. But in Hebrew, it says Yahweh. His actual name. It's not just saying God. Any God has the title God, right? Any idol. But, but, but only our God, the God of Israel, has the name Yahweh. Okay? So she knows who God is. This is 
Fascinating. So she says, For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, two giants, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Now look at this. Rahab the Canaanite is about to make a profession of faith. Listen to what she says. This is incredible. For Yahweh, the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on earth beneath. She says, I'm switching side. I'm leaving Anath and the other hideous Canaanite gods behind. And I'm saying this. Yahweh is the one true God and I'm following him. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours even to the death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will kindly and faithfully deal with you. So guess what? Rahab's life got spared. And her mom and dad, and all her brothers and sisters, and all of her kids, and all of their kids, her whole huge family of Canaanites get saved. They stay in the land, they get rooted in the land, and they get blessed. And they're all Canaanites. What you are reading here in the Old Testament is not a racial war. This is not ethnic cleansing. This is not genocide. What you are reading, the wars in the Old Testament, you are reading a war against a culture, not against individual people if they repent. And so Rahab and her whole family, they, they get saved. Yahweh is the one true God, and God says, come on in, you're part of my people. They get rooted in the land, they get blessed. You want to know something else? God loves this Canaanite woman so much. Guess what he does? He puts her into the bloodline of Jesus Christ. He is so pumped about this Canaanite woman who recognizes who the one true God is. He says, I'm going to make her the great, 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 whatever something, grandmother of Jesus Christ. Jesus had Canaanite blood in his DNA. Look at this, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. I wonder how much longer I could read this and you would all follow me. <laughs> and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. I'm just going to call it Salmon. I don't know, Salmon, Salmon. It seems weird calling him a fish, but the father of Salmon. I'll just say it that way. And Salmon the father of Boaz by who? Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. By the way, there's another woman there and she's a foreigner too. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. You know what's so amazing to me about this? So God, here she switches sides. God doesn't say she has to be killed because she's a Canaanite. God doesn't say she has to move because she's a Canaanite. All, the only reason people had to move out of the promised land or get killed is because they refused to accept God, not because of their ethnicity. And so God says, I love this woman who switched sides. I'm putting her in the bloodline. And he's so pumped about what he did that the Holy Spirit goes to Matthew. And Matthew's writing the genealogy. He says, psst, because the genealogy is just the men. The whole genealogy, it's just following the men. It's not the mothers. And the Holy Spirit says, psst, Matthew, you've got to put this in there. Go out of your way to put this in there. And so when he gets to, and Salmon the father of Boaz, he should have just said, and Salmon the father of Boaz, but he doesn't. Matthew goes out of his way to, to write, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And then the very next generation, in order to just show you that God, it's not just one woman, we have Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. 
We have another woman that Matthew goes out of his way to write her into the genealogy. And is Ruth a Jew? No way. She's a Moabite. See, God loves people. The Old Testament is not the story of innocent people getting slaughtered to make way for the Jews. It's not. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, okay, Chris, because you just can't get your mind. You're so used to reading the Old Testament as slaughter, ethnic warfare, mass extermination of peoples, which is not what it is. But you're so used to it, you're thinking, okay, you know, fine. You know, Rahab and Ruth, Chris, you found me two tiny little exceptions, but on on a large scale, God was not accepting of these other peoples. Wrong. See, right from the very birth of the Jewish nation. From the very moment when they were born, God showed the world that his arms were open to all ethnicities and groups. I'm going to show you this. Right from the moment when Israel left Egypt, I want to read you a description of the children of Israel. Here it is, Exodus 12, 37 to 38. Rahab and Ruth were not exceptions. Any foreigner who wanted to follow the one true God could become one of the children of God. Exodus 12, 37 to 38. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Okay, so it's the people of Israel, the Jewish bloodline. Now look at this next verse. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. This mixed multitude is talked about in at least a half dozen places in the Old Testament. You say, who's this mixed multitude? The people of Israel went up with a mixed multitude. It's a mixed multitude of nationalities. It's a bunch of Egyptians and other nationalities going up with the children of Israel out of Egypt. See, here's what happened. God sends those 10 awe-inspiring, terrifying, horrific plagues on the country of Egypt. And a whole bunch of Egyptians said, whoa. The, The God of Israel is the one true God. They watched Yahweh give their demonic gods a severe beatdown. And so when the Israelites were leaving out of Egypt... These Egyptians and a whole bunch of other nationalities that were living in Egypt, this mixed multitude, they said, we're going with that God. He's the true God. We've seen what he can do. We are following that God. And guess what? God welcomed them in with open arms. He was so happy to have them join in. Look, he even made a law. Ten verses later, ten verses later, Exodus 12, 48, he made a law for how this mixed multitude could just become a Jew. Here's what he says. If a stranger shall sojourn with you, a foreigner... Okay, and would keep the Passover of the Lord. So in other words, a foreigner comes and says, I'm leaving my gods behind and I'm coming after Yahweh, the one true God. And he says, okay, and and they want to worship at the Passover in the most holy Jewish festivals. Okay, they can do it. All they have to do, let all his males be circumcised. So they have to be committed, right? They got to leave things behind. I'll just leave that there, okay? (laughs) And he says, then he may come near and keep it. Look at this. He shall be as a native of the land. He's just like a Jewish person. This was not about ethnic cleansing. This was not about mass extermination. Any Canaanite, any foreigner in the land could say, I'm attaching myself to Yahweh. You are like a native of the land. You're a child of God. That's amazing. This is the whole testimony. This is not an odd verse here or there in the Old Testament. This is the testimony of the whole Old Testament. Let me read you two more passages. Isaiah 56 God says this through the prophet. He says, let not, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. In other words, let not the foreigner who has come to worship me think of himself as a second-class citizen. 
Let not him say that I will divide him away from the rest of my people. You switch sides, you're in. It's one team, not two classes. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. All peoples. Let me show you another one. Jeremiah. Look at the mercy of God in this passage. Jeremiah 12, 16. And it shall come to pass if they, speaking of foreigners again, will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people, right in the land. In other words, look at the mercy of God here. God says, even if some of these Canaanites who were teaching my people to worship Baal, if they will switch sides even now and worship Yahweh, I will forgive them and bless them right here. They don't have to move. They don't have to be killed. Just like one of my people. I hope you're starting to see through these three points now. There's, there, I hope you're starting to see the Canaanites a little differently now. These are not innocent people and then the Israelites ambushed them. They had, first of all, they weren't innocent. Second of all, They didn't have to be slaughtered. They were supposed to just pick up and move. And only if they were stubborn and wanted to stay back and fight against Yahweh, then there would be war. But if they switched sides, they could stay and be blessed. Every Canaanite had three choices. Switch sides and be blessed. You don't even have to move. Well, if you don't want to do that, you can keep your religion. You can move and live to see another day. Or you can be stubborn, in which case, yeah, then you could die. That's their choice. See, the thing you have to realize here is that the wars we read about in the Old Testament, they are wars against a culture. They are wars against a religious system that absolutely had to be exterminated. And so this wasn't going to be a multicultural society. Okay? God was not setting up a multicultural society. Again, two reasons for the Jewish people. Reason number one, Jesus has to be born through someone, and he's coming through the Jews. So that's reason number one for the Jewish people. Reason number two, God is putting them in a promised land to be a light in a dark, dark world that doesn't know about Yahweh. They are a lighthouse on a stormy, dark night. And he wants the Jewish people to be a light that shines into all the world so the Gentile nations can look at Israel and go, that's who the true God is and they can come to know Yahweh and be saved too. It's God's mercy and love raising up the Jewish people. Now, of course, if they're going to be a lighthouse, God can't afford them because many nations, their, their destiny, their eternity is depending on knowing about Yahweh. So God can't afford for the lighthouse to have the light tarnished or darkened or put out. So he says, we cannot have mixing with the vile cultures that are here. The culture and the religion has to go entirely. There can be no mixing. We're not going to have a Jebusite quarter in Israel. We're not going to have a Hittite town or, or a Canaanite section in Israel. It's going to be pure Israel, Yahweh culture. But any one of these Hivites or Jebusites or Canaanites who wants to switch over and come into this culture is blessed and welcome. Do you see the difference? It's a war against a culture, not a war against individuals. And that brings up my fourth point. And this, this fourth point is going to help you understand a whole bunch of passages that look hateful. On the surface, we just go, boy, does God hate people? He doesn't hate people. Okay? So this is the point. Individual, ca- uh, wrong point. Wrong page. 
When God hates a nation, it doesn't mean he hates all the individual people in that nation. You're going to read lots of passages in here. Lots and lots of passages in here. And where God is saying, these nations, this nation needs to be devoted to utter destruction. Show them no mercy. I hate this nation. I hate this nation. And people read that and they say, see, God hates people and he's got no mercy on them. Okay? False. Absolutely false. See, and the thing is, we actually talk this way in modern times too. But we don't give God the benefit of the doubt because we want to blame him. The truth of the matter is we talk about this all like this all the time in modern times. There are two ways to talk about a country. There are two ways to talk about a country. You can talk about a country on the national level and you can talk about a country on the level of its individual citizens. And it's totally different when you talk about one as the other. For example, let me just give you an example. Nazi Germany. When we talk about Nazi Germany, what do we all feel? We feel hatred, revulsion, evil system. That was, when we talk about Germany in World War II on a national level, we hate Nazi Germany, and we should. And the allies in World War II, their whole goal was to utterly destroy Nazi Germany on a national level. Destroy their culture, and their teaching, and their economy, and their war machine, and their armies, and all of their leadership. The goal of the allies, it was good versus evil, and the allies wanted to crush, on a national level, Nazi Germany. And we all get that. Not all of us go, yeah, for sure. That was evil. But of course, we all know when we say that, that we don't mean that we hate every German person who lived in Germany in World War II. Of course not. That, that would be evil. There was many good German individuals within an evil nation, yeah? I mean, I think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a, a man of God, a German man of God living in Germany during World War II, one of the greatest men of God that, you know, in history. He wrote a book, uh, he wrote many books, but one of his books is just a classic. We have a few copies in the library. I would recommend anyone to read it. It's called The Cost of Discipleship. And it's his meditations on what grace is. And if, by the way, if you're hooked like a junkie on the cheap grace that's being taught on TV and, and published in the bookstores today, you won't like this book. It's a good book, okay? <laughs> anyway, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a he was, a, he was a German, and his friends all told him, when, as the Nazis were rising to power, he said, get out of Germany, Dietrich. And he said, no, I'm going to stay and be a light to my fellow Germans. And of course, the Nazis killed him. He was martyred towards the end of World War II for his absolute love and loyalty for Jesus Christ and his active resistance to Adolf Hitler. So we know that there were good German individuals in Germany. So when we talk about hating Nazi Germany and that we're glad that you know, Nazi Germany got smashed and when the Allies were smashing them, no one was thinking of mass extermination of German individuals. No. Well, it's the same thing when you read in the Old Testament. God says, I want you to utterly destroy the Canaanites. I want you to utterly destroy the Hivites and the Jebusites. He's not saying that any individual Jebusite who wants to repent can't. Because any individual Jebusite or Canaanite or whoever they want to come, God says, I love you. I absolutely love you. By the way, I want to just hit one more point, and I'm out of order now. Charmaine is probably already shaking her head. It's always happens to me at 11 o'clock. Go back a couple verses, because I want to show you one other thing. There's one more uh, objection. I know what some of you are thinking, and this is important. Uh, some of you are thinking, yeah, but the Canaanites didn't know about God, right? They didn't, maybe they didn't hear about him. So how did they have a chance to repent? Let me just show you a couple of passages here that the Canaanites all knew who God was. They had a chance to repent. They had a chance to choose him. 
okay? Let's go back to Rahab, Joshua chapter 2 there, Charmaine, if you can find it. Oh, you're amazing. There we go. Look at what Rahab says. I want to go back to this story again. Look at this. For we have heard. We. It wasn't just Rahab. How did Rahab know the name of Yahweh? They had all heard of him. We have heard. They knew who God was. They were not ignorant. This was not God uh, judging ignorant people who didn't know about him. They knew about him. We have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you, came, uh, before you when you came out of Egypt. Skip ahead of verse to, to verse 11. And as soon as we heard of it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for Yahweh, the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. The Canaanites all knew who God was. There was no excuse. Any of them who were left in the land when the Israelites were fighting them were ones who were deliberately resisting Yahweh and holding on to their demonic culture. Look at Joshua chapter 9. I'll show you another example. It wasn't just Jericho. Everybody in Canaan knew who God was. And this is the story of the city of, uh, of Gibeon and the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites, they heard about Yahweh and they knew who he was. And they said, oh, we're not going to fight him. Good thinking. So they decided to trick the Israelites. Okay, that wasn't the best. That's not the best way to switch sides, trickery, okay? But it's better than nothing, okay? So famous story. They send a couple of guys with tattered rags and dry moldy bread, and they go to Joshua, and they pretend that they came from a distant country. And, and let's just read the story. Here it is. They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? And they said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come. Because of what? Why did they come? Why are the Gibeonites doing this? Because of the name of the Lord your God. Everyone in Canaan knew who God was. Because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon and to Og king of Bashan who lived in Ashtaroth. All right? They knew. So four points. People say innocent people. God was slaughtering innocent people to make room for the Jews. No, he wasn't. First of all, remember the context. The only reason God is even getting involved in history is because he wants to save mankind. But then secondly, if we start to look at the specifics, we realize the Canaanite people were not innocent. They weren't slaughtered. They were supposed to be driven out. Third of all, they all had a choice to stay. They all knew who Yahweh was and they could choose to switch sides and stay and be blessed. And fourth of all, when you read about God hating nations, he's not hating, he's not hating individuals in that nation. He's hating a culture and a religious system. There, I think we've destroyed that objection, in my opinion, which is really all that matters since I'm preaching, okay? So part two, let's shift gears. Polygamy. Let's talk, let's talk about polygamy now, okay? Polygamy is not condoned in the Old Testament. And this is one of the most common questions I get from inside the church, outside the church. And many women, well-meaning women, good women, it's not bad to ask questions. It's not bad to ask questions. But I get asked this question uh, regularly because here's what happened. Happens, uh, a lot of you ladies, you're reading the Old Testament. Us guys aren't bothered by it as much. And uh, obviously. And, um, but, you know, women, you're reading the Old Testament and you see that everybody was polygamous. And even the heroes I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of people in the Old Testament are, are polygamous, and including heroes like King David, a man after God's own heart, had multiple wives. And so women read that and they go, and, and they feel like God doesn't value women. How can a man after God's own heart, how can God love a man that acts like this? And, and so a seed of doubt gets planted in their heart, and they think, you know, God doesn't value women. And God is patriarchal and all sort of stuff. 
okay? And so we have, to, we have to answer that question. It's a good question. It's a question that needs to be answered, all right? So let me just say a couple things, and then I want to give you three points. First thing I want to say to you is this. Every time you read about polygamy in the Old Testament, every single time, okay, it is descriptive, not prescriptive, okay? Every single time. You won't find a place where it's prescriptive. It's always descriptive. What do I mean by that? Every time you read about polygamy in here, it's that the Old Testament is just telling you what happened. It's not telling you what you're supposed to do. Does that make sense? Okay, that's really important to know. The second thing that you need to know before I give you my three points is this. Polygamy is never once glorified in this book. Never once. Now that is in stark contrast to some of the great religious books of the world today. The Quran, for instance, which is the, the Bible of the second biggest religion, Islam, which is growing very quickly. The, but the Quran has passages in it that glorify polygamy. And of course, Mormon, uh, the Mormon Bible and stuff like that, you'll find passages that glorify polygamy. You will never once in this book find polygamy glorified. This book is brutally honest about the, the effects of polygamy. Because you'll read in this book and every time you come, whether it's David or Solomon, even the heroes of the faith, where they engage in polygamy, every time in here you will find the strife and fighting and hurt and brokenness and often godlessness following very closely on the heels of polygamy. This book does not glorify it. This book does not prescribe it. It only describes something that was happening. So let me give you three points now and prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that God did not condone polygamy in the Old Testament. And the first point is the most important point, and that is this. Go back to the creation of the world again. If you want to know what God wants, is that people are always complaining about things in the world. Well, why does God allow this? And we have to always go back and remember, wait a minute, who brought this into the world? And if people did, then we don't blame God for it. When God made the world, there wasn't polygamy. God made the world with one kind of relation, marriage relationship for men and women, and it was monogamy. He made the world good. Polygamy comes, sin comes into the world, and in a warped world, warped men abuse women. But we go back to creation. Look at this, Genesis 2.24. This is how God meant for the world to be. Therefore, a man, one, shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, one, singular, and they shall become one flesh. That's, how God, that's God's ideal. God's idea was not polygamy. You can't pin that one on him. Matthew 19, verse 5 says this. Jesus makes this even more clear. He's quoting Genesis 2.24. And he says this. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two, the two, not three or four or five, the two shall become one flesh. But again, people chose sin. People thought up polygamy in a sinful warped world. Warped people did that. Now, I know the objection, right away the objection comes, well, then why didn't God speak up and say something against polygamy? Why didn't God make a, a, a law forbidding polygamy? And here we expose the shallowness of our reading of the Old Testament because guess what? He did. And let me say this. Also, he didn't need to. The fact that he created the world clearly with one man, one woman shows what he thinks. He doesn't need to do anything further to, to, to prove it. In a perfect world, it's one man, one woman, and that's what it's, gonna, and that's what it's always going to be forever when Jesus comes back as well. There's not going to be polygamy when Jesus comes back on the earth. So that's all he needed to do. But he went further, and he actually gave us laws explicitly prohibiting polygamy. Let me show you. 
Deuteronomy 17, verse 17. And he, speaking of the king, shall not, shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And he actually goes along and gives a few more rules for kings. By the way, interestingly enough, interestingly enough Solomon broke every single one explicitly. I mean, there's a reason Solomon just sinned so badly, but it started with his polygamy, and he just broke every single one of those commands in Deuteronomy 17 for kings, and that's why the whole kingdom got torn apart. But anyway, it says clearly right here, and the king shall not engage in polygamy. There it is, right there. Now, of course, some people, they just, again, they're desperate to make the Bible bad, okay? And so this is the objection, well, it's for kings, but it's not for anyone else, Okay? So let me, I have two words, an answer for that one, and it's called, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Who ever heard of a law that only applies to kings and not to their subjects? Who ever heard of kings not being able to do something that everybody else under them can do? The reason God specifically addressed this one to kings is because they were the ones most likely to do it. They were the ones with all the money. They were the ones with all the power. They were the ones with the temptation to make political alliances through marriage. They were the ones with the temptation and the ability to amass many wives. So God said, don't do it. But this is for everyone. It's for everyone. Okay? And if you're not convinced, let's go to Leviticus 18.18. Okay? And this one I'm doing the King James Version because it's the closest to the word order with the Hebrew. Okay? Which will be important in just a moment. All right, here we go. Leviticus 18, 18. Neither shalt thou take a wife to her sister to vex her, to uncover her nakedness beside the other in her lifetime. Now, the unfortunate thing is here, when we read this in English, what it looks like is it's just prohibiting marrying two sisters. And by the way, that's a good idea too, right? Don't marry two sisters. That's bad. Okay? But, uh, so, but it just looks like to us, like, okay, don't marry two sisters. But if you want to marry two women, as long as they're not sisters, it's okay. That's what it looks like to us. Um, but actually, that's not how, uh, you know, Jews, ancient Hebrew-speaking Jews, who these scriptures were written to them in their mother tongue, that's not how they would have read this passage, and I'll prove that to you in just a moment. But let's just look at the Hebrew here for a second, okay? The Hebrew word for sister there is the word, and if we have any Hebrew scholars here, please don't email me, okay? I'm butchering it. I'm telling you in advance, okay? But the Hebrew word there is achoth, okay? Achoth. Now, put up the next verse there, Charmaine. Um, achoth can be translated throughout the scriptures. It is regularly translated. It can be translated one of two ways. It can be either translated as sister or as the word another, both. And it's translated as both a number of times in the Bible. Okay, it can be translated either sister or another. Here's just one verse, Exodus 26.3, where achoth is translated as another. Same word. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another. Same word underlined there, achoth as sister in Leviticus 18.18. 18. And the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. Achoth, same one as the other ones. Same word. It can be translated either sister or another. Okay? Now let's go back to Leviticus 18.18 18 now and read what it says if we translate achoth as another. Neither shalt thou take a wife to another to vex her, to uncover her nakedness beside the other in her lifetime. In other words, don't marry more than one woman. By the way, it just sounds like common sense to me these days. Why would you want more than one? But anyway, that just, <laughs> right? Why? It's just, I mean, that can have a name. Never mind, I'll just stop there. But anyway, I didn't say that when LaDonna was here last night, that's for sure. Now, some of you might be questioning. You might look at this and you might say, oh, okay, Chris, you're just fiddling with the Hebrew to make the scriptures look good, okay? 
And I mean, first of all, I don't know Hebrew. This is what scholars are saying, okay? Second of all, let's forget about scholars who speak English and study modern translations and have had to learn Hebrew and all that sort of stuff later on. Let's go back as far ancient as we can and see what ancient Jewish, Hebrew-speaking Jews thought this passage meant, okay? If we go back to the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls are one of the greatest archaeological finds of all time. In the 1940s and 1950s, in the Qumran Caves in Israel, right close to the Dead Sea, they found these jars filled with ancient, more than 2,000-year-old parchments. Okay? And in those parchments, they found hundreds of manuscripts. Our oldest manuscripts of the Hebrew Old Testament, by far our oldest, all come from these Dead Sea Scrolls. And they found hundreds of manuscripts. Amazing. And these manuscripts date back to about 200 years before the time of Jesus. And there was this group of Hebrews, they were called Essenes, and they lived in, a, in what was called the Qumran community down there by the Dead Sea. And they were Jewish scribes, and their primary job was copying out the Hebrew scriptures. Okay? So they, this is, these are ancient Jews living before the time of Jesus. These are exactly the people who the Old Testament was written to. It's written in their language to them. Now, it's interesting, they didn't, they didn't just find the Dead Sea Scrolls. These scribes did more than just copy out the Bible. They also wrote some of their own kind of commentary-type writings and different books like that, okay? And if you read in that stuff, the fascinating thing about Leviticus 18.18 18 here is that the, the Dead Sea community, the Qumran community of Jews living, two, Hebrew-speaking Jews, 200 years before the time of Jesus, and they uh, interpreted this verse as being a total prohibition of all polygamy, not just marrying two sisters, So very important. God made laws prohibiting polygamy. God created the world without polygamy. He made laws prohibiting it. Now there's one more objection. And the objection is this. People will say, but what about passages of Scripture like Exodus 21, and I think Deuteronomy 17 is another, but there's these passages of Scripture where God makes laws about how to do polygamy. And people say, well, if you make a law about how to do polygamy, you're condoning polygamy. Okay, let's look at it. Exodus 21.10. If a man marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. And people say, look, and there's a few laws like this in the Old Testament. Look at this. Obviously, God uh, is condoning in this law polygamy because he's telling you how to do it. Okay? Well, let's just think about that for just a second. Okay? I'm going to show you the ridiculousness of that position. Um, first of all, I want you to notice that this is what is called case law. You don't have to remember that. It's not important. It's actually obvious to us all. This is not a law telling people that they should marry another woman. It's telling them what they should do after if they have done that, right? This is not like the Ten Commandments, don't ever commit adultery. This is if something happens, then this, okay? Now that does not mean that God condones the if part, if a man marries another woman. For example, we've got laws like all over in Deuteronomy 5 and places like that where God says, if a man steals a cow, he has to pay back five Now, by making that law, is he condoning stealing? No. He's saying, what happens if you steal? Let me use another example. Divorce. If you say, based on this law, that God condones polygamy because he made a law about polygamy, then you also have to say that God likes divorce because you'll also find divorce laws in the Old Testament. Let's look at one. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, 
And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. If the lat- and yada, yada, I'm not going to finish it because I'm running out of time. But anyway, uh, lots, uh, it's a divorce law. Now, if you want to apply the, the reasoning that, that people are applying today, the polygamy law, they're saying God likes polygamy because he made laws about it then you have to also say that God condones divorce because God made laws about divorce. And in fact, that's exactly what the Pharisees did with this law. They looked at this law. Hey, God made a law about divorce. Woohoo! We can divorce and remarry as many times as we want. And they were just you know, marrying and dropping wives like whatever. Okay? They were just doing that. And th- then it really bothered them. Jesus came along and said, God hates divorce. And it's adultery if you divorce for not a good reason. And the Pharisees were ticked off at that and they threw this exact commandment in Jesus' face. They said, well then why did God make a law about it? Let me show you this, okay? I love when they tried to get Jesus. This is great. Matthew 19, 7 and 9. They said to him, the Pharisees, so they're throwing it in his face because he's saying, you can't divorce. And they're going to go, yeah, look at Deuteronomy. So here it is. Why then did, and you can just hear the sneering tone. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Nah, 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 Jesus, Okay. You're saying that it's not good to divorce and God made a law about it so obviously he condones it. Look at how Jesus answers them. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives but from the beginning it was not so. Notice he goes back to creation just like we did for for the monogamy, polygamy one. He says, go back to creation and find out what God really likes. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus says, God hates divorce. But because of your wickedness, in order to protect women, he had to make some divorce laws. So let me tell you what was happening. In the Ten Commandments, God, said to Mo- God gave to Moses on Sinai. He said, do not commit adultery. And here's the ingeniousness of the, f- the, the sinful nature. I mean, we human beings, we're all good at this. We love, how do I get around the law? So God said, do not commit adultery. So you know what the Israelite men were already doing in Moses' time? They they were thinking to themselves, but I want to have sex with more than one woman. But I can't commit adultery. So, brilliant idea. Here's what I'll do. I'll sleep with this woman and we'll get married. And then when I'm done with her after a few days or a couple weeks or whatever it is, and then we'll divorce and I'll marry someone else. And so what they were doing is marrying and divorcing women like crazy and it was just legalized adultery, thumbing their noses at God. God said, I hate adultery and they were totally skirting the spirit of it by marrying and divorcing. And God said, that is disgusting and what it's going to do to the society and what it's going to do to women is disgusting. So because he loves women, he said, here is what you have to do to slow this process down. In order to get a divorce, you must not because he loves divorce, but because he hates this that's happening over here. You've got to get a certificate of divorce. You have to get an official document and it's got to have witnesses and the whole bit. So you can't just marry and divorce, marry and divorce in order to have sex with whoever you want to. That's the reason. So God, Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart. Now look at this. In the Old Testament, it clearly says that God hates divorce. Malachi 2.16, let's read this. I hate divorce. Pretty simple. There it is. Okay, I hate divorce. So, you see, you can't look at a case law. You can't look at, well, God made a law about divorce, therefore he condones it. No, bad reasoning. Let's go back to polygamy. If a man marries another woman, if, 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 God is not saying what people should do. He's saying, this is because God loves women. 
He already, we saw at creation, there was not such a thing as polygamy. He made laws prohibiting it, but the fact of the matter is that God in his mercy doesn't just kill everybody because there's polygamy. He doesn't just kill everybody because there's idolatry. He's working with human beings in a very sinful, debauched culture. And polygamy was so deeply ingrained in those ancient cultures that he said, I know that some guys are going to do it. So if a man marries another woman, he must, he better not you know, abuse. He better keep taking care of the first one. Or else there's going to be even more to answer for than just the polygamy, right? Because God's going to be mad because you're not loving the first one, right? This is because God loves women. God values women. And God loves people. All right? I'm out of time. Bow your heads with me. Close your eyes. Lord God, we give you all the glory. Everything you have ever done and everything you will ever do is just. It is true and it is good. And Lord Jesus, you love us and you love women and you love men. And you love every ethnic group on this planet. But Lord, you hate wickedness. Father, I pray that as a church, we will grow in our confidence in you, your character, and your word. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, we're going to see many young people from this area, from half an hour away, an hour away, wherever it is, that they will flood into this church, Jesus. That they will fill this church, that we can disciple them and grow them up in you, Jesus, and mature them in you. And I pray that it will begin to spread across this country, Father. That young people will not leave the church anymore, but that young people will come in by the power of your spirit and by good teaching. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.